Let's turn in our Bibles to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. We're not going to spend long here in Isaiah 1. I'd like to move through Isaiah quickly to get to what we're going to be studying over the next several weeks, maybe as long as the next several months. Isaiah divides into three sections. There is the first section, chapters 1 through 35, and then there is an interlude, chapters 36 through 39, and then chapters 40 through 66 are the third part of the book. That simple little three-part structure is really important to know how we study the book. But before we start to study that book, what I'd like to do, what I'd like to do over the next several weeks, even months, is make a study of Isaiah 40 through 66. We're going to study the third part of that book, and uh, today we'll kind of kick off that study. Let's pray, and we'll get going. Father, would you help us now? Would you teach us? Would you um, help us to see what Isaiah's audience saw, and help us to meditate on the goodness and grandeur of your character? For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. I want you to think back to a time where you guys got some news, but it wasn't good news. Maybe it was a a doctor walked in, knocked on the door, walked in, and sat down and took that posture that doctors take when they're about to tell you something that they know you don't want to hear. Or perhaps you got a letter in the mail, or perhaps you had somebody show up and say, well, like you to sit down, or perhaps you came upon somebody, a loved one in fact, who's crying, and you realize the news that you're about to get is bad. So bad, and I'm sure we've all had this happen a time or two in our lives, the news is so bad that you feel physically the weight of the news. It hits you. You feel a shock to your system. Your brain actually releases chemicals that instigate a surge of adrenaline and activity and turmoil, fear. It's news that hits you like a weight. You feel it. I'm sure you've felt that before. Isaiah is writing to people who are about to get that kind of news. Life-altering, world-altering, crushing news. But that event that's going to shock them and hurt them and be a weight on them isn't coming yet. Some of the people who read this will live through those times. But it hasn't happened yet. God has some words for them in preparation of that hard news. Now, if you live on this, in this world any length of time, you're going to get some of those words. They are coming to you. Whether you want them or not, or whether you like them or not, you're going to be getting some of those words. So what does God have to say to you ahead of that? What does God have to say to you ahead of that? You don't get to choose when this news will come. You don't get to choose the form that it will come to you. But it is coming. When it does, what does God want you to know? What does God want you to remember? God has some counsel for us for life's extremities. 
for the really hard things of life that change you. Well, let's work our way to what God has to say to us ahead of time. Okay? This is God's word ahead of a painful season. Okay? God's word ahead of a painful season. I had you turn to Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah is a marvel. It's a literary marvel. It's the highest piece of literature in the Old Testament. Isaiah's vocabulary, his writing style, his use of metaphor, his picturesque language. He uses poetry throughout. Isaiah was an absolute genius in the way that he wrote. His Hebrew is considered by the standards of the ancient world a marvel of ancient literature. Secular professors have studied it for its quality and variety. It's a marvel. But it's only fitting that God should package such lofty theology with such lofty language. That's what God does. So let's just take a few seconds to learn a little bit about this man, Isaiah, who wrote so well. I had you turn to Isaiah 1. Let's look right at the first verse. It says, The vision of Isaiah, son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, in the days of, and we're about to get a long list of names, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, all kings of Judah. Isaiah's ministry as a prophet spanned these four kings. In fact, we know that Isaiah was prophesying for the Lord for over 60 years, six decades of faithful service and telling God's people what God had said. Isaiah was a married man. He doesn't give us the name of his wife. He just calls her the prophetess. And we know that Isaiah had at least two sons. We're told about them in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 6. We're told that the name of his first son, I have to flip there because I can't remember it. I remember the name of the second son. The name of his second son was Meher Shalal Hashbaz. It's a, it's a nice little uh, bit of Bible trivia. But in 7.6, we're told that his other son, his name is Remaliah. Remaliah means a remnant shall return, and Meher Shalal Hashbaz means the prey hastens. Isaiah was so committed to the Lord that even when it came time to name his children, he named them fitting the message that he was preaching to his people. He wanted his very sons to be an object lesson for what he was trying to tell them. Well, that begs the question, what was Isaiah trying to tell the people? What was Isaiah trying to communicate so urgently that he would name his sons after his message? Well, go to Isaiah 1 and we'll see. Right here, Isaiah doesn't waste any time. He says, I, I got a vision and I prophesied over the course of 60 plus years during these, three, during these four kings. What is it that I needed to tell them? Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, verse 2. For the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Right from the very start, second verse in, Isaiah is talking about rebellion in his children, deep rebellion. He goes on to say in verse 4, a sinful nation, a people laden, they're loaded, they're overwhelmed with iniquity. They're the offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They've forsaken me. He goes on later to uh, in, go down to verse 113. He says, bring no more vain offerings. 
Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath are the calling uh, and the calling of convocation, uh, convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. This is the Lord talking. These are religious type people. People who have made it a hobby of going to worship Yahweh God. Yet even though their body is there, even though they're going through ceremonies and doing things, their hearts are far from the Lord. And the Lord says, because you're doing these things in an empty way, I am personally repulsed by this empty form of religion that you're giving to me. The Lord is so opposed to the state of their heart that he sends Isaiah to preach judgment on these people. That's Isaiah's job. His job is to preach judgment. Well, what's he supposed to say? How long is he supposed to say? What's he supposed to do? Go over to Isaiah 6 and we'll see this. Isaiah has called this man. Remember, Isaiah prophesied over the course of four kings. This is the first king that he prophesied under, King Uzziah. He says right here, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And this, this king, he's, this king is robed. He is also a king who sits in a temple. Keep in mind, this was not allowed in the Jewish state. The priesthood and the office of king were completely separate things. In fact, Uzziah got in trouble because he bullied his way into the temple. And he was struck with leprosy because he thought the king could do priestly things. But the Lord is God of both. This is a king who sits in the temple. And this king who sits in the temple, who's holy beyond compare, calls Isaiah to preach. He says, I want you to go and tell these people how sinful they are. I want you to go and tell them how much my soul hates these empty ceremonies. Verse 8, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, and he, here am I, send me. And he said, go and say to the people, keep on hearing and do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of the people dull. Go down to verse 11. How long is Isaiah supposed to do this? Then said I, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant. The prophetic ministry of Isaiah was to prepare the people for destruction. He would preach comfort. He would preach salvation. He would preach repent. But right here at the very start of his ministry, the Lord informed him that his prophesying would not have a saving effect on his people. You see, when sinners hear God's truth, it affects them. It does. And it affects them one, or one of two ways. They either repent and turn to the Lord and are saved, or they harden their hearts and they move on with their lives and they remain unchanged, unmoved. 
And in the worst case scenario, they take God for granted, thinking that God will always be there. And this is why Isaiah himself says, today is the appointed day of salvation. There's no guarantee God is going to keep preaching this gospel of grace to you tomorrow. Repent now. And Isaiah's job, his job, we need to let this settle in on us. He knew from the start was to preach God's mercy and grace to preach repentance, knowing that the people would reject it and heap yet more judgment on themselves. Well, Isaiah goes about this faithfully. He does. He goes about this faithfully. He is going to preach, and he's going to preach what God tells him to preach. And what I want us to know, and we're going to work through this so that we can see it, because it's really important. Remember, this book has a structure, and the structure is intended to help you in preparation for hard times. Okay? Isaiah's mission is to preach people, preach to people so that they are more prepared to be judged. And he goes about this. 14 different times in this book, he prophesies destruction on certain people. Okay, let's go forward to chapter 9, verse 8. Okay, chapter 9, verse 8. The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and the people will know Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and in arrogance of heart, the bricks have fallen, but we will build with just stones. The sycamores have been cut down, and we will put cedars in their place. All right, so right here, Isaiah says, I'm bringing judgment on everybody who's proud. Go to chapter 13, verse 1. An oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. On a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter in the gates of the nobles. He goes on to say that he's going to execute anger on their mighty men. He's going to judge Babylon. Go to chapter 14, verse 24. God is going to, the Lord has sworn, as I have planned, so it shall be, as I have purposed, so it shall stand, that I will break the Assyrian. He will break them. Go to chapter 14, verse 28. Or verse 29. Rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod has struck, that the rod struck you is broken. He goes on to prophesy judgment on Philistia. 15.1, he prophesies judgment on Moab. 17.1, on Damascus. 18.1, on Cush. 19.1, on Egypt. 21, again on Babylon. Chapter 22, he says judgment is coming to Jerusalem. Chapter 23, he says Tyre and Sidon will be judged. 24, the whole earth will be judged. Whole earth. Chapter 28, Ephraim and Jerusalem. And chapter 34, all the nations. Isaiah is working his way through prophesying judgment and what's the conclusion? What's the irrevocable conclusion that we must come to reading the first several chapters of Isaiah? Who's getting judged? Who? Everybody. Everybody. It's inescapable. Well, that's the first third, the first section 
of the book of Isaiah. Now turn over to 36. Chapter 36. Remember, I told you, this structure has a purpose. When you see the structure, it will minister to you. Trust me. There's a crisis. Remember, everybody's going to get judged. I'm judging them. I'm judging them. I'm judging Philistia, Cush. I'm judging Egypt. I'm judging Assyria. I'm judging Babylon. Chapter 36, verse 1. In the 14th year of the king of Hezekiah, in the, uh, in the, king, uh, in the 14th year of king Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and took them. You have to keep in mind, by ancient world standards, Sennacherib and his army of Assyria was greater by comparison than all the military might of the United States and NATO. They were an unstoppable military force. Everybody that they went up against, they conquered. And the Assyrians did not play games. When they conquered you, they let you know. They conquered Egypt. They conquered everybody around them. They conquered the Macedonian Empire. They conquered every nation they could go up against. And when, when they conquered you, when they conquered you, what they would do is they would skin your warriors alive. And they would ship the skins and the heads to other nations to let them know what they will do to you. And then they would sell your women and your children into slavery. They played for keeps. And they didn't mess around. And they were never beaten. And here they are, rolling to Jerusalem. Now, if you have heard, judgment, 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 everybody's getting judged, everybody's getting judged, and suddenly there's this Within eyeshot, you can see them outside your city. What do you think is going to happen? It's time. That's what you're thinking, right? It's time. Well, chapter 37. Sennacherib sent Hezekiah a letter. Hezekiah spread it out before the Lord, prayed. Isaiah goes to see Hezekiah, and he says, I don't want you to worry about Sennacherib. They're not even going to get close enough to shoot a bow into the city over the wall. Now, I've, I have fired some old-school bows, bow and arrows. They don't go very far. <laughs> In fact, even modern bow and arrows, the compound bow and arrows, the, the farthest you can shoot those with any reliable accuracy is, I think the Olympians, when they, when they uh, Olympians, um, compete, they go at 90 meters. Okay, that's considered a long testing shot, 90 meters. Okay. So, with an ancient bow and arrow, how close do you think you could get before you'd have one go over the wall? A couple hundred yards? So imagine this army that plays for keeps, that's going to kill you, comes to within... 400 yards of your wall. You can see them, you can hear them, you can smell them. You see their campfires at night, you smell their stinking bodies. And God says, 
this far, no further. Don't be afraid. He says, in fact, I'm going to put a hook in Sennacherib's nose and lead him back home where he will fall. And that's exactly what happened. That far, no further. Now, Hezekiah rejoices in this, but then he gets sick. He's a young man. Isaiah tells him in chapter 38 that he's going to die. Now, remember, judgment, judgment, judgment. Here comes the war machine. God sends them home. Now what are you thinking? Now what are you thinking? Well, maybe it's not time. <laughs> that was a close one. <laughs> but we're, we're out from under it. Okay? Well, Hezekiah gets sick. In chapter 39, some um, ambassadors from Babylon come and visit him to congratulate him that he was sick and recovered. And Hezekiah was a wonderful man, a great man, but he did tend to pride. And so he showed these envoys of Babylon all the riches of his kingdom, all the stuff that Sennacherib didn't get. He didn't give glory to the Lord. And so now Isaiah comes and says, remember all that judgment that I gave you? Remember all those predictions of judgment? They still stand. They haven't gone anywhere. But now it has a name. Let's read chapter 39, verse 5. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word, the Lord of hosts, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. Now, suddenly, this judgment has a name. Before... They weren't sure when it would happen. They weren't sure how it would happen. They just knew that Isaiah kept prophesying, prophesying, prophesying. Here comes a threat. They're delivered from the threat. But suddenly, they realize the threat hasn't gone anywhere. In fact, they're waiting certain judgment at the hands of Babylon. And the people are preparing themselves for destruction and judgment. Now, that's a long introduction. I don't usually preach introductions that are that long. But remember what I told you at the very beginning? What does God want to tell you ahead of awful news? Imagine being the Israelites, knowing that Babylon is the nation that's going to carry all your stuff away. And you hear through the grapevine that Babylon is growing. Babylon has conquered this nation. Babylon has conquered that nation. Oh no, it's the battle of, I believe it's the battle of Carchemish. Babylon defeats Assyria. Nobody had ever defeated Assyria except for the angel of the Lord. Now Babylon is the bully on the block. And they're coming south. They've got this new king named Nebuchadnezzar. And he's coming to Judah. 
Judgment is coming. Judgment. But what did God tell you ahead of that? Everybody look at chapter 40, verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. What is the message that God wants his people to hear ahead of judgment, ahead of the news that will rock you? What does God want you to hear ahead of these things that you can't anticipate or know, these things that will have a physical effect on you and utterly change your life? What does God want you to know ahead of that? Comfort, comfort, speak tenderly. God wants you to know ahead of all those events his comfort and his tender words. This word comfort, it's, it, it's used in different contexts. It refers to a mom who picks up her child who is crying for a good reason. <laughs> okay. You know, sometimes kids don't cry for a good reason. But the other day, my two-year-old Joel was barreling down our driveway. You know, he's a baker, so he's a little top-heavy with his head, you know? And he goes, boom, right down. Well, he didn't want dad. He wanted mom. So mom takes him up in her arms and holds him, and he cried for a good long time. That's the word. In fact, nobody had to tell Danielle, go pick up your son and comfort him. Something instinctively in her caused her to run to the child and comfort him. That's actually the word. There is instinctual movement toward his people from God to comfort. It's the idea. Speak tenderly to her. It's actually, uh, the, the, it can be literally translated, speak to the heart. Speak to the heart. Whatever the news is outside of you that's affecting you, God doesn't want to speak specifically so much to that news. He wants to speak to your heart ahead of time so that you'll be a fortified city when that news does come. So that you will stand like a rock and rely on God. In fact, this is the word, I, I wish our translations would have said it a little differently. It says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and then our translation says, and cry to her. It's the Hebrew verb kara, which really literally means to preach. It's a, the word that a herald would use when going to a city to announce something from the king. Preach, herald. Lift your voice and cry words of comfort. Cry tender words. Speak to the heart. Comfort my people. Ahead of this disaster. Okay. What are the things that they're supposed to derive comfort in? How many of you have ever had this? You, you're thrust into a situation where you're trying to provide some comfort, and it seems like every bit of comfort that you offer somebody, they're like, oh, that doesn't apply to me. That doesn't count. That's not valid. This is, you, you know what I mean? And, and finally, you just kind of throw your hands up in the air and say, you're going to have to want to be comforted, you know? 
my parents used to say, if you want to sit on the pity pot, go for it. <laughs> and they'd walk away. Well, what is it? What are the sources of comfort that we can actually derive real comfort from? Okay. That, that we can't sort of get out of, that we always qualify for. Number, uh, number one, there's a bunch of them. I'm going to go through them quickly. Here's a comfort for you. Your sins are forgiven. If you've asked the Lord, if you've repented, if you've turned to the Lord, your sins are forgiven, your ultimate problem is taken care of. Whatever happens in this life is fine because there's a forever coming. And in the scope of forever, 70 years, 80 years feels pretty short. And your biggest problem is the sin that you have between you and your God, and that's settled. That's taken care of. God says it's covered. Jesus Jesus came preaching peace. Paul says, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. You and God are good. You're good. So whatever you face, it's not from God because your sins are covered. Okay, number two, verses six through eight. He says, people are temporary. Tyrants come, tyrants go. Petty managers come, petty managers go. Cranky neighbors come and go. People come, people go. The word of the Lord, it stands forever. It stands. God reigns. Verse 11, God is a tender shepherd. He'll lead you through this. He will guide you through this. Verses 12 through 17, God is magnificent in power. God not only is tender, he not only cares, he not only has great compassion for you, he actually has the power to do something about it. I may have used an illustration, something like this before. My, my five-year-old daughter, Gracie, is a world of compassion. She, just, she feels so deeply and tenderly for people. It, now imagine you're having a bad day, and Gracie, my five-year-old, comes up to you, and she would do this. She would say, I'm going to give you a million dollars. Okay? And she would mean it. Does Gracie have a million dollars to give you? <laughs> Maybe one day. I don't know. But here's a person who's as tender and compassionate as Gracie, but has a bottomless bank account, has endless power. It says right here, it says, uh, he says, who's measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? The hollow is this little part right here. All the waters of the earth, God's like, hmm, it's about a thimbleful, I guess. <laughs> he says that he measures the mountains like dust on a scale, and there's a specific word for this dust on a scale. It, it refers to the insignificant dust on a scale that you don't even bother to blow off because it's not going to amount to anything. Okay. God says, that's the mountains to me. So here's this God who owns everything. Verses 22 through 25, he says, people to me, no matter how powerful they might be, are nothing to me. They're like grasshoppers. They're nothing to me. Tyrants come, tyrants go, it's another grasshopper. So don't be, I, 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 God says, I'm not up in heaven fretting over rulers. I've got them under control. Understand that. Take comfort from that. Verse 26 
God calls forth the stars. Okay, do we understand this? The galaxy, we are not, we were not made for the galaxy. The galaxy was made for us to teach us something about God. How else could God communicate infinity, eternity? He gives us a picture of this endless thing, and it says that as stars appear, he's the one who called that light forth. We're still seeing new stars, by the way, who were billions of light years away, and only now is that light catching us. God says, I timed that. I called that forth so that you would understand my power. I did. Verse 28, his wisdom is unsearchable. Verses 29 through 31, he strengthens those who trust in him. He strengthens those who trust in him. Okay, let's go back to what we said at the very beginning. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. When you get that news, and it literally buckles your knees, understand that God's word will be a foundation for you. God's character, his power, his might will hold you. And when you put your trust in him, that news won't crush you. It won't. He'll strengthen you such that you'll fly like an eagle. Isn't that amazing? So, God's giving you some counsel ahead of time. I suggest that we drink deeply of it in preparation for moments that will be hard. Okay, let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that you've been, you've spoken such words of comfort and grace, such tenderness to us. May we get to know you, relish you, and derive great comfort from you. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen.